It is no doubt that American politics appears more divided now than ever. With the rise of conservative voices across the country, we have also seen a powerful resistance of organizers calling for increased social policies. We're finally talking about universal health care. We're talking about instating free public college. And we are finally redefining the value of labor in our economy. Today, we're here with Micah Utrecht, the managing editor of Jacobin Magazine and the host of The Vast Majority, Jacobin's podcast. Micah is currently in the process of releasing his second book, Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism. We are here in conversation with him and Dalvin Abouaji, the co-producer of The Utopian and ombudsman of the Stony Brook Press. We're all free. We all have the liberty to go to the hospital when we're sick. Uh, nobody is stopped from doing that. In fact, the hospital would love to have you uh, because they would make a lot of money off of you. But you're not free to actually use those services in a way that will not completely crush your life and erode your liberty as a human being uh, when you get that bill from the hospital for $100,000. My name is Jenny Dadari, and this is The Utopian. So, Micah, socialism is somewhat of a scare word in the U.S., and I find that social democracy, democratic socialism, socialism are often used interchangeably and conflated. What exactly is democratic socialism? Democratic socialism at its core is about expanding democracy. It's about expanding the political democracy that we already have and expanding democracy into realms that are currently undemocratic, like in the workplace and in the economy as a whole. So, for example, right now at the typical American workplace, we know that the larger society is supposed to be a democratic society, but when you go into work, you enter into a dictatorship where your boss is the the dictator, the petty tyrant who gets to tell you whatever he or she wants, gets to order you around, can fire you if they don't like the color of your tie or your receding hairline or whatever <laughs> they want. Uh, and democratic socialism is about changing that, both at the individual workplace level, but also in, in the society as a whole, where decisions about investment, like whether to invest money into the factory or a workplace, uh, that would then provide people with the jobs that they need in order to survive and, and to produce the stuff the society needs. It would democratize that process so that people would uh, have a say in those things rather than leaving those things up to uh, capitalists who are currently accountable to nobody but other rich capitalists. So but the essence of democratic socialism is that expansion of democracy where it exists and also into other spheres where it does not currently exist. Right. And I think that's a wonderful definition. But, you know, there is this idea that 
liberty and freedom is essential in a capitalistic model. So when we're talking about democratic socialism, what kind of policies are you proposing to increase freedom? And what would you say to the listeners who say that using the government to establish these freedoms is actually ironic because we should be giving power directly to the people and perhaps not to the government? Well, I would certainly agree about the necessity of liberty uh, and that is at the core of the democratic socialist argument and that, you know, you can't be fully free. You can't fully have liberty at the truest sense in terms of being able to do the basic things that you want to do in life without uh, unfair constraints on you, without having, you know, enough food to eat, uh, an affordable place to live, uh, without going into tens of thousands of dollars in crushing student debt with uh, not being able to go to uh, the hospital when you're sick because you feel like you can't afford it. Uh, Democratic socialists believe that that's a really crucial piece of liberty that we lack right now. We're all free. We all have the liberty to go to the hospital when we're sick. Uh, Nobody is stopped from doing that. In fact, the hospital would love to have you uh, because they would make a lot of money off of you. But you're not free to actually use those services in a way that will not completely crush your life and erode your liberty as a human being uh, when you get that bill from the hospital for $100,000. So there's that piece of the of, of liberty that has to include uh, economic provisions for the basic things that you need in life. And then there's also the, the basic stuff, you know, the, the, the freedom uh, from, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of you know, negative freedom or freedom from you know, imposition by a tyrannical government or something, and then freedom to, which would be the freedom that I was talking about, about freedom to get health care, have affordable housing, et cetera. Um, so I was just talking about the freedom to, but the freedom from is just as important for democratic socialists. None of us wants to uh, eliminate the basic liberal freedoms like freedom of assembly and freedom of the press. That's critical to any kind of democratic socialist vision. Um, I think that, we do believe, I mean, it is, it is a, a erosion of the liberty of a capitalist to do whatever they want by saying, you know, we're going to give control over investment to the masses, not to, uh, to, a, to, the, to the tiny handful of rich people. Um, but the, 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 <laughs> the capitalist, quote unquote, liberty to do whatever he wants with his millions and billions of dollars comes at the expense of the liberty of the rest of us. So liberty is essential in every sense of the word, in the sort of freedom to have the basic essentials of life and also the freedom from in terms of the basic uh, civil liberties. And obviously there have been many uh, cases over especially the 20th century of governments ruling in the name of socialism who have not respected those uh, basic uh, the freedom from uh, you know who have not respected people's basic liberties you know, sort of in the liberal rights sense uh, and democratic socialists have always argued very strongly against that certainly has argued against the Stalinist tradition that has incurred on those rights and and you know believe that no socialism worthy of the name uh, can be called that without having a, a robust set of individual rights attached to it what do you think are some methods of organizing that are more digestible for people to view as also aligning with the ideology of democratic socialism? I, I automatically think of things like unions or worker or like worker consumer owned co-ops. What are some other 
sort of like methods of organizing that you think people would actually be behind that DSA or any other organization also sort of backs to as well? Yeah, unions are essential because workplaces are where capitalists make their money. Workers are the, the goose that lays the golden egg for the capitalists to get rich off of. And so and it's also where most of us, the vast majority of us, spend the vast majority of our lives at work. And so, uh, you know, organizing at work is, is you know, workers have tremendous power in the, in the capitalist economy. Uh, and uh, it's an essential sphere, as I mentioned earlier, for us to expand democracy into. And historically, the industrial workers especially, but organize, the organized working class in general, has played an enormous role in democratizing societies, in winning all kinds of social democratic goods like free health care in, in countries around the world. So certainly uh, unions are extremely, extremely important. And, you know, there's a lot of people who would, who don't view politics as a hobby the way that somebody like me does, uh, who, you know, don't pay super close attention to what's going on in the political realm. But at work, they're confronted with the fact that their job sucks, that their boss uh, is a terrible person, that they're being paid less than they need to survive on. And that can spur them into action, into organizing with their coworkers who they have a common interest with changing their situation. So, the, you, the workplace is essential because it, it, it covers the vast majority of us and it, it's an incredible amount of social power that workers have to win all kinds of stuff. I mean, in addition to that, there are campaigns that are that are obvious that we know are uh, being trumpeted, you know, trumpeted by a socialist and are starting to be taken up by the rest of the political realm. So there's a Democratic Party. The most obvious example is Medicare for All, which is based, it is not a, a sort of fully socialist proposal. I mean, socialists would believe that something like the National Health Service in the UK, which is fully nationalized, would be where we want to go with our healthcare system. So Medicare for All is not a kind of fully socialist reform, but it takes socialist principles and runs with them and says, we can't have the kind of healthcare that we need where everybody is getting the healthcare that, that they deserve as human beings, that they're, where they're not being crushed by awful medical debt, where we control costs and all the rest of it when the free market is in charge of our health care system. And that's, you know, that's a socialist principle that we need to decommodify things that are currently run by the market and run them in a way that instead benefits the common good, uh, the benefits the vast majority of people. So, you know, campaigns like Medicare for All, campaigns for affordable housing, where people are realizing the same thing about housing, that when housing is treated as this good on the free market that is that is about, you know, the way that we run housing in the United States is mostly uh, dedicated to making landlords and real estate developers rich rather than serving the basic human need of housing. Uh, that, so that kind of decommodification goal that, that socialists have pushed uh, is, is finding widespread resonance at a time when uh, housing prices are out of control across the United States. So, uh, yeah, organizing at work and decommodifying a lot of the most basic social goods that we all need to survive on uh, are, are re very popular, resonate with lots of people. They speak to real needs that people are uh, up against right now. Uh, and they're a huge reason why democratic socialism is having such a resurgence in this country and why democratic socialist politicians like Bernie Sanders who are championing those policies are finding a lot of resonance with their message. Right. I, I think it's really 
wonderful, this idea of organizing at work. But we've seen since the 1970s that there's been a crackdown of unions in the United States. And we're seeing that workers are working two jobs even to make ends meet, which makes it very difficult for them to have the leisure time to organize. So, you know, when we're talking about the language of the title of your book, how we can go from the Bernie Sanders campaign to democratic socialism, in America, we're just starting to talk about Medicare for all, which is not even universal health care. We're just starting to talk about free state tuition. So how is it that we can make such an immense transition to the system that emphasizes welfare for all when we don't even seem to be ready for the most rudimentary social policies? Well, I would agree with everything you said up until the end, which is that we're not ready for those policies, because I think that on the, the policies that I just talked about, like Medicare for All, their polls repeatedly show that strong majorities, uh, including in some polls, majorities of Republicans, are in favor of Medicare for All. So on that debate, it's just in terms of winning the public over, advocates of Medicare for All are have, have largely won. You know, now we have to do the hard part, which is win the actual policy itself. But in terms of winning over the public, we've, we've already won that debate. And I think that's true of a lot of things across the board. I mean, I live in Chicago, you know, one of the uh, major American cities that's facing an affordable housing crisis, just like every other uh, big city around the country, as well as small cities and towns. You talk to people, I mean, people are constantly on the street, even just talking about how gentrification and how housing prices are going up, people are getting displaced. I mean, these are real needs that people feel that you don't have to convince them. You don't, you don't have to do it. It's not a heavy lift to convince them that like, yeah, something needs to change about this system because they know that they are getting screwed uh, in terms of being able to afford their housing. So I think that um, starting with those kinds of issues that speak to really acutely felt problems in American society are the starting point. Uh, and then we can start talking about, you know, other things like, oh, well, you know, you, you can't afford your apartment in the neighborhood that your family's lived in for several decades. So why is that? Well, it's because uh, real estate developers are able to just jack up the prices however much they want. Well, why is that? Well, that's because their housing system is run in a way that benefits uh, capitalists, that benefits those developers to make them money rather than provide you with the thing you need. Isn't that a weird way to run housing? And if that's a bad way to run housing, isn't that a bad way to run all these other things in your life? So it's, it's, a, it's a way to start a conversation about why the free market can't actually meet the needs of people and what an alternative way of running our society could look like. Right. And I, I think that's a really, really important conversation to have. I do want to ask you, though, because in 2016, we saw that President Donald Trump was elected and everything that he stood for represented everything that democratic socialism is against. So do you think it was desperation that led to that? Was it helplessness? Was it, what was it exactly that led to that? And, you know, going forward, we're still seeing so much skepticism, these really, really negative remarks that Bernie Sanders is a quote unquote socialist, especially in rural areas where individuals tend to be more free market oriented. How can we go about changing these mentalities in these communities where we're seeing that conservative voices are very dominant? And as a matter of fact, they are influencing the electoral college when we're deciding who's going to be the president of the United States. Yes, I think that the reason that Trump was elected, it's related to this crisis around the world in parties that have pushed centrist policies 
given up on a kind of robust left wing vision of what the world could look like, uh, as well, uh, and, and instead are, are pushing basically like a strong pro corporate policies. Maybe they're not open, you know, reactionaries. They're not openly racist or anti immigrant, but they're certainly friendly to corporations. This is your Bill Clinton's the world, the Barack Obamas of the world, Hillary Clinton's of the world, as well as you know the Tony Blairs and the UK and. and the same is true for many parties across Europe and around the world. So if it, if people are not are not interested in voting for people who are doing these sort of uh, neoliberal policies. And they sense that there's a real crisis in their lives and a crisis in society. And they don't think that those centrists are up to the task of really dealing with those crises. And so uh, you are left with a vision of, either the kind of robust left-wing politics that someone like Bernie Sanders represents or the really noxious right-wing populism, you know, the xenophobia and racism and all the rest of it uh, that someone like Donald Trump represents. Like the center has shown to be a complete failure. Uh, People are not interested in in voting for centrists anymore. That doesn't mean that centrists can't sometimes win, but overall – People have a, a gut sense that centrists aren't up to the task of fixing our problems. So that leaves us with, with you know, a, a choice between socialism or barbarism. And in 2016, people, you know, the Sanders lost the Democratic primary. He was the socialist option uh, in part because there was a party that was really arrayed against him at the highest levels. So then when the centrist went up against the barbarism, uh, Americans went for went for the barbarism. So I think that is what we're going to continue seeing in the United States and around the world. We're going to keep having that choice between between socialism and barbarism, between a more robust left-wing politics and a reactionary and racist and xenophobic one. This is particularly important in the era of climate change where, uh, you know, I did a debate recently with a former member of the Trump White House, I brought up climate change and how the market is certainly not capable of rising to the moment when the world, you know, we're, we're, we're facing down the barrel of really catastrophic climate change in the very near future. And the free market is not going to fix that. In fact, it's the free market that brought us to this point. And rather than deny that climate change was a real thing and that it was coming, the former Trump administration official said, well, you guys on the left are always talking about climate change. You're worried about all this carbon. But then you want to let in all of these immigrants from Central America, from Mexico, from wherever else. And uh, they're going to come here and they're going to adopt a high carbon lifestyle like the rest of us have here. So if you're really serious about climate change, you should be trying to keep these people out. So they keep you know, expelling less carbon in in Honduras or El Salvador or wherever. And I think, you know, that's a really shocking thing to hear, but I think that's the future of the right-wing argument in the era of climate change is not to deny climate change is happening, but to say that, yes, climate change is happening, and we better keep out poor people, keep out brown and black people, uh, you know, keep people from Africa, from Asia, from Latin America, and let's batten down the hatches and just keep, you know, sort of quote-unquote real Americans being the ones who are, sucking up all the carbon and living the high lifestyle here. So uh, I think that is the future that we're facing. Uh, it's a really terrifying one. And it's certainly one that centrist neoliberal Democrats or other centrists around the world are not up to the task of taking on. Across the board, even if you look at like recent polls, uh, millennials and Gen Z tend to 
deeply agree with the policies and ideas espoused by democratic socialists like Bernie Sanders. Do you see that same momentum or that same drive continuing as both generations get older? Because I even see, I don't know, people who grew up in the 60s and 70s during times of mass activism and where it also seemed like the world was basically on fire. They've sort of lost that same spark that they used to have over time as the decades have gone and as they've gotten older. Do you think that same thing will happen to Gen Z or millennials? Or do you think it's just more consistent because of climate change, because the problems we have now are more dire? Right. I think that the reason why so many millennials and Zoomers are uh, in favor of socialist policy is not because there's some kind of inherent left-wing uh, bias to anybody who's young. It's that those of us who are millennials or, or Zoomers are facing really dire lived conditions. We're taking on tens of thousands of dollars worth of student debt. We're facing down the real possibility of a, of a world that is going to look really, really bleak under climate change. We are getting paid lower wages and you know wages are stagnant uh, over the past several decades we don't have pensions we can't even imagine retiring or buying a house or anything else so i think that is the reason why so many young people are adopting left-wing values at this point not because there's something inherent to young people uh, being uh, left-wingers and the lived conditions that we live under continue uh, then of course we're going to keep arguing for left-wing policy. You know, if we reach a retirement age and we don't have any savings accounts and we're in crushed under hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical debt and, and you know, didn't have any savings to speak of because our wages were so low and never were able to buy a house and so don't have any money up uh, tied up in property, like, I, I, it's hard to imagine that the anybody facing that kind of uh, condition is going to then turn towards right-wing policies. So, yeah, I think that uh, as long as things stay as bleak as they are, uh, people will continue to uh, turn towards uh, the left, although it's always possible that, as I mentioned before, instead they could go to the right. They could say, you know, yes, I'm facing all of these huge problems and it would be solved if we just deported all these immigrants and, uh, I don't know, you know, crack down on trans people being able to use bathrooms or whatever reactionary social policy they want to they want to uh, take up like it's always possible people can go that way so it, 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 there's nothing inherent and natural about people's politics it's you know the left has to actually make its case and fight to win people over uh, and i think that'll be essential in the years to come Right. But it's really interesting because a lot of the social policies that are promoted by the left, such as collective bargaining, such as high unionization, it actually enfranchises the working class. So you're always left to wonder. I mean, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the myth of the American dream. Maybe that's the reason only America in the advanced world hasn't been able to implement so many of these basic policies because it's really hard to let that dream go that I can be the next Mark Zuckerberg. And people really latch on to that despite the possibility of it being essentially non-existent. But when we are talking about the manifestation of this democratic socialist regime, what does it look like? Are we talking about the sort of social democracy that we see in places like Norway or Finland, where we do have a free market economy that's supplemented by a robust welfare state in terms of workers owning the economy? What does that look like to you? 
Well, the first step is the basic decommodification. So what we were talking about before, decommodification of essential goods and services. Decommodification is like what we were discussing with Medicare for All. It's taking a good that is currently distributed and uh, distributed through the free market and thus exists to make a profit for someone and uh, taking it off of the free market and making it into something that is distributed based on what people need. Um, and so, you know, we, that's where you start. You decommodify things like healthcare, you decommodify higher education, you decommodify housing. Uh, and I think that's the, that's the place to begin uh, any conversation about sort of how we move towards socialism. And then beyond that, I mean, who knows? There are, there are you know, utopian visions out there. Uh, there's also sort of more practical, medium-term ones. I and mean, some people talk about, for example, creation of a uh, wealth fund, like a sovereign wealth fund like they have in uh, countries like Norway where, uh, or, or that were proposed uh, under something called the Minor Plan in Sweden in the 70s, where stock and corporations in the country would be slowly bought up by uh, workers themselves or like, you know, funds that are owned by workers or funds owned by unions or funds owned by the government. Uh, and uh, then that way, the workers or just average people in society will be able to reap the benefits of owning the shares of that company, uh, not just a small number of capitalists. There's, I mean, there's all kinds of schemes and, and, and uh, strategies and blueprints that people have for what the future society should look like. I think that, uh, you know, you have to work. It's important to put those ideas out there, but it's also important to say that the future socialist society has to be decided upon democratically by people in that society. Um, but whatever it's going to look like, the, the way to get there is through building a mass movement that can fight and win for those kinds of gains. So building a labor movement, building a grassroots movement to fight for Medicare for all. Uh, I mean, that is what is distinct about Bernie Sanders in some ways and what I and Megan Day argue in our book, Bigger Than Bernie, is that what's more important about the Bernie Sanders campaign than just the individual policies that he's putting forward, like Medicare for All, impressive and important as those are, what's more important is the fact that he is insisting that he is not going to be the one who carries out all the social change himself. He says that he needs to build a bigger movement in society in order to win social change. And if he can do that, and if we can do that, I guess, better said, uh, if we can build that kind of bigger movement, uh, then there's no telling what we could accomplish. But like that building up of a, of a grassroots movement of, a, of millions of working people getting involved in the political process and fighting for these things is crucial if we're going to be able to build the better world that I believe in and that many other socialists and millions of other people believe in. I think the only benefit of living in the current moment is that post-2016 is that it's really waking people up from the complacency that we're in, that they were in, and you're seeing people become more politically engaged than they ever were before. Uh, with that being said, what are some ways that you think somebody who doesn't really see themselves as that well-versed in politics or organizing or anything like that, get involved. How are, what are some ways that I guess to quote the old cliche that people can think globally, but act locally kind of thing really in terms of um, enacting 
democratic socialist policies or even getting closer to those policies? Yeah, I mean, the most important thing that anybody can do is uh, form a union at their work if one doesn't exist or join one that, uh, join and get active in one that already does exist. And for a lot of young people, I think even progressive young people, they think, okay, I've heard about unions. I have a vague sense of them being good. I don't really know what they do, but I think they're good. But that's something for some other kind of worker somewhere else, some more authentic, quote unquote, working class person than me. That's for people who wear hard hats and on construction sites or in factories or whatever. But especially in recent years, we've seen the spread of unionism to uh, many industries, including like white collar industries, people who work in offices, people who are journalists, you know, healthcare workers, like all kinds of people. Um, and so the first thing to understand is like unions are really important and unions are for anybody who works for a living. It's, uh, it's not just for, uh, it's not for some other more authentic working class person. Like if you work for a wage, if you've got a boss, uh, you, you know, punch a clock to get into work every day. If, if you're getting managed by someone else, if you're not a capitalist yourself, if you're not owning large amounts of wealth and that's how you, how you survive in life, then the union is for you. And so that's uh, critical. I mean, I'm a member of the democratic socialists of America and DSA has done incredible work in a relatively short amount of time. I mean, in less than three years since Trump took office, DSA has been running all kinds of electoral candidates who have won and supported people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib, both of whom are members and who are uh, were elected to the House of Representatives in 2018. But also on a local level, like I was in Chicago and we elected six people who are members of DSA to our city council. There's hundreds of elected officials around the country who are members of DSA. But DSA isn't just about elections. It's also about these kinds of grassroots uh, uh, campaigns like around supporting unions or, uh, you know, supporting immigrant rights movements or a whole, or, you know, literally, you know, feminist, you know, reproductive rights. I mean, the, the immigrant rights list goes on and on and on about what DSA is involved in. So I'd encourage people to get involved in uh, what's going on with uh, DSA uh, and, you know, the, the maybe, the, you know, say the most important one for last, I mean, Bernie Sanders is running a real credible campaign for presidency right now. And while I don't believe that Bernie Sanders would solve all of our problems and I'm not like putting all my eggs in that basket, he certainly has helped revive the American socialist movement and gotten people engaged in electoral politics in a way that they were not engaged before. He raised the expectations of what we can achieve in American society and American politics. And him winning the presidency it would, would be really transformative for the United States and for the rest of the world. So, uh, you know, the Sanders campaign has people volunteering all over the country in every nook and cranny. And so, um, from, from my point of view, uh, getting him elected in uh, 2020 is the most pressing task, not only for people who want to see the United States look different, who want Medicare for all, who want relief for their student loan debt, but also for stopping climate change and for, you know, stopping uh, the American imperial states, you know, bombing of countries around the world. Like, he's the candidate who offers us the best chance to make progress on all of those fronts. And so uh, him winning in 2020 is, is crucial. And I, I think uh, if people want to get involved in making the world a better place and fighting for that kind of socialist future, 
or a future of any kind that is not extremely uh, bleak and depressing and look, looking like something out of a sci-fi novel, like out of Mad Max or something, uh, he is the one who will have to unite behind him and get elected. Yes. So you mentioned utopia. What does utopia mean to you and what does it look like going forward? Yeah, you know, I, I'm somebody who believes in the importance of a utopian vision, but it's also not something that I think about very often, in part because I think people's expectations have been so low for so long that we're very far from being able to convince people of a utopian like like the first task is to like win medicare for all right like like end the you know first task is to get kids out of cages at the border like uh the first task is to just convince people that the world can look just a little bit different uh and so that's what i spend most of my time thinking about and that's what most of us at jacobin spend their time thinking about um but you know you, you do need a north star to guide you and in fact that's uh, the, part of the whole problem with the the erosion of, or, of a robust left-wing politics in this country and in the world is that people have totally given up on the utopian vision. And they say, well, we're just going to fight for whatever we think we can achieve. And that's how you end up with, you know, Bill Clinton-style triangulation, where your your sights are just so low uh, that, you, that you don't actually, you know, fight for a real vision of politics. So... Um, like a, like a robust vision of politics and fight you know, to demand that, that some things actually change in our political system. So, um, you know, I, what, what does that utopia look like? I don't know, but I, I fervently believe that we can live in a society where people have their basic needs met, uh, where there is not grinding misery, where people don't have to do GoFundMe's to pay for their cancer treatment or, uh, don't have to, you know, uh, not have kids and not buy a house and not, not live decent lives because they've got student loan debt. Like, I think we can, we can provide for people's basic needs and we can move beyond our, uh, animal, uh, you know, needs. You know, we can make sure everybody's fed and clothed and housed, uh, and we can move on to sort of wrestling with the stuff of what it means to actually be human. So we can wrestle with existential issues, but you can't do all that stuff if your basic human needs aren't met and we have it within our power to create a society that can do exactly that, that can meet those needs. And uh, so maybe that's not a utopian vision. Um, and I don't, I don't think that that vision is too far out there and I'm, I'm going to, I'm dedicating my life to fighting for it. And I, I hope other people do too. 